Hi there, it's February 29th, 2024. Welcome to episode 312 of Rok Amjian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durud Bashama. Hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We have certainly spent a good deal of time being critical of the Islamic Republic of Iran on this program. Everything from the current repressive theocratic rule to the mismanagement, the economic troubles, the problematic traditions that may still exist. But we always need to be careful to not play into stereotypes about life in Iran and the people leading it. For example, the idea that those in Iran are not as up to date as those living in the West as such presumptions might be made about, say, fashion. After all, how can a troubled nation mired in sanctions, disunity, popular protests, financial troubles, resource blockades, possibly keep up with the dynamic clothing styles of Milan, New York, Paris, L.A., and the Iranians living in those places? But what if we turn it around? That that is, while it may seem counterintuitive, Iranians inside Iran may be considered more fashionable than those in the diaspora because they've developed a distinct style that goes beyond simply wearing fancy name brands and sartorial status symbols. In Iran, where access to Western luxury brands is limited and expensive, people have had to rely on their creativity and resourcefulness to create stylish looks. This has resulted in a fashion culture that values individuality and personal expression over conformity to Western mainstream trends. On the other hand, many Iranians in the diaspora, especially those in Western countries, have easier access to luxury brands and tend to place more emphasis on wearing these labels as a way to display their social status. As a result, their fashion choices can sometimes be seen as more formulaic and less original compared to those of Iranians in Iran. People inside Iran have been able to maintain a strong connection to their cultural roots through their fashion choices. They often incorporate traditional Iranian elements, such as intricate patterns and fabrics, into their outfits, creating a unique and distinctive style that sets them apart from others around the world. So the case can be made that people inside Iran are considered more fashionable and have been able to develop a style that is innovative, culturally rich, and independent of mainstream fashion trends. It's a case that is going to be made by my featured guest today, the globally acclaimed designer and Iranian-American fashion mogul Nima Behnoud, better known by his company name, Nimani. He's going to sit down with me in the Rook studio for one of his first long-form interviews of this type in English. Nimani coming up. Here we go. Let's get started. Good to have you with us. This is Rook, episode 312. Are people inside Iran more fashionable? studio hello smart pega hello happy leap year day yes happy february 29th day. step into the microphone pega <laughs> um nima behnud you know it's been actually uh 
it's been a, I think it's been about three years. Mm-hmm. The show's been on for four years. For most of those four years, we've been trying to get Nimoni <laughs> on the show. He's such an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll put this to him in the interview, but I think, like, other than the super, super icons in our broader community, like, I don't know, Gugush, mm-hmm. Reza Pahlavi, like, uh, Farah Pahlavi, I, 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 I think Nimani might be one of the most recognizable mm-hmm. names for Iranians anywhere in the world. Definitely. There's certain rock stars that some people may not know. There's certain <laughs> politicians some people may not know. There's certain, you know, actors or whatever. This Nimani is pretty universal. I think the the brand in and of itself, um, the name Nimani for sure, but also some of the first designs that he ever created are so well known. And even the individuals who don't know the name of the brand can recognize some of the pieces so quickly. He kind of changed the game for Iranians outside of Iran and for Iranians inside of Iran, mm-hmm. expressing that fusion of Persian uh, art, poetry, traditions, etc., and modern fast-forward fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, forward-thinking fashion. I don't know what the, what's the term. Fast. Fast fashion. Not fast fashion. No, fast that's fashion like, is the yeah, yeah yeah no. Fashion forward. Fashion forward. That's okay. what I was looking for. Not fast forward, but also fast forward. But also he's fast, quick. Yeah. This guy's nimble. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's coming into the studio in just a few moments. Happy to have Nima Behnud here on the question: Are people inside Iran more mm-hmm. fashionable? And I love this because. I'm guessing, I mean, we just put it up on Instagram and immediately the response was yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing for most Iranians, they get it. If you were to ask most people outside of the Iranian community, if they think that's true, they would think of, based on stereotypes of Iran and what you see on the news, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which would be a bunch of people... They don't just show people wearing rusari. They show like you know the chador, the chador, like, like yeah. a bunch of women and just clothed like a, it's like the Taliban. Yeah, they would be like, "Oh, are you kidding?" Fashion stuff. They would have such a skewed view, I think. But um, but I in, in the more I've sort of thought about this issue and gotten ready for this interview, it totally makes sense. I mean, I kind of spoiler alert. <laughs> Nima's going to argue that there is a, a dynamic fashion culture coming mm-hmm. out of Iran inside Iran that doesn't necessarily exist in, in the West oh, amongst sure. Iranians uh, who are caught up in the, as we know, you know, brand names and, mm-hmm. and the more mainstream stuff that's been around for a while. And out of necessity or maybe more than that, I'll ask him, uh, young designers and people in Iran are, are doing some really, really cool interesting stuff. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your answer would be yes to this oh, question. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, it's funny when um, when we were talking about this topic, I was thinking just in my immediate group of friends, uh, most of them now, if they have a big event coming up or if there is you know something that they really need to shop for, they don't do it here. They'll wait to either go back to Iran or if they still have family there, mm. their specific um, people that they know or brands that they know and things like that, and they'll shop from there because it's just that much nicer well, than what we have available to us here. What a, You must have a lot of working class friends who... Um, <laughs> Here we go. What a what a simple uh, idea. Oh, I need a, a new outfit, a shirt. Maybe I'll fly to Iran <laughs> to buy it. Eh, all the regular people you hang out with. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to this. Nima coming up. We're going to do the roundup after mm-hmm. uh, because he's waiting here and we have him in Toronto. I don't 
I don't think he comes to Toronto that often. He's got to pop up here the mm-hmm. next few days. So we got to take advantage of having Nima Behnud. Nima, and he joining us in just a, a moment. In the coming days on Rook, Sara Nayani will join me. Shahbal Shapare will be excited. here in the studio. Uh, the artist Mobina Nouri. Hamid Rahmanian. Mm-hmm. He does that shadow theater yes. with the puppets with the and puppets. the multidisciplinary multimedia art. Song of the North is his latest production. He'll be here in the Rook studio. Somebody that, I don't know if you know we've booked, that um, you will know her music because you love Persian music. Mm-hmm. Nusha Farin. Oh, I didn't know. Actually, not just music, but an actress yes. who goes back to the pre-Islamic Republic days mm-hmm. of the 70s, where it turns out she was kind of like doing some racy stuff too, yeah. you know, like... Uh, there's pictures of her like without clothing on and all this. I mean, she's a she's kind of a pioneer, like doing. I mean, not a pioneer. I'm guessing she wasn't the only one doing it, but mm-hmm. but she was part of that progressive wave of liberal arts happening yeah. in Iran in the '70s. Oh, I'm very excited. To and have then, her. and she's, I think she's going to be in the studio. Amazing, Nusha Farin coming up. I'm very excited about that as well. And we're going to make a big announcement in the coming days about our next Rook live shows. Mm-hmm. So get ready for that. Um, we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. You can link to all of our platforms there at our website, rookmedia.com. We are, of course, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and CastBox. You can see a lot of what we're doing. Uh, we shoot video. Uh, we have little video tidbits, little funny animations, all that stuff on YouTube or at our uh, Telegram channel. Or, sorry, on Instagram as well. And our Telegram channel is in English and in Persian. So if you want the bilingual version of the show, check us out on Telegram. If you want to support what we do, go to our website, rookmedia.com, and press the Support Us button to go to our Patreon page and become a regular Rook member. Pega, I'm going to trade you for Nima yes. Bahnud. So uh, he's going to come into the studio. There he is, coming in the studio. And let's get to our feature interview. Are Iranians inside Iran more fashionable than those in the diaspora who may have more access to high fashion and more resources. In other words, despite living in a more repressed society, or maybe even because of that, are Iranians inside Iran somehow more creative today with their sartorial expressions? That's our proposition for this episode. And again, my very special feature guest today is someone who not only believes the answer is yes, but has lived it to a certain extent in his own journey to fashion success. He is a New York designer who was born and raised in Tehran where he nurtured his passion for creativity from an early age. Nima Behnud is the son of Masoud Behnud, a prominent journalist and writer. And Nima embarked on his artistic journey as a junior illustrator at a popular magazine in Tehran, immersing himself in the vibrant atmosphere of the art department as a teenager. At 18, Nima relocated to California, eventually making his way to New York to pursue his design aspirations. He refined his skills at the Fashion Institute of Technology, laying the foundation for his future endeavors. In his 20s, Nima founded his own brand, Nimani, blending Persian typography with contemporary designs, earning global acclaim for his distinctive style. His innovative approach extended to jewelry then and handbags with iconic pieces like the Farsi letter H ring becoming synonymous with his work. Through 
Nimani, Nima continues to push boundaries, redefining traditional mo- motifs with his unmistakable artistic vision, leaving an indelible mark on the worlds of fashion and design. He is here for a Nimani event in Toronto from March 1st to March 3rd, located at 300 King Street East in downtown Toronto. If you are listening to us right now, anywhere in the greater Toronto area, the broader Ontario, if you're in Canada, you want to head to Toronto, downtown Toronto, the Nimani pop-up for the next three days. But first, right now, Nima Bahnoud joins me in the Rook studio. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. Is it a kind introduction, or is it your illustrious career so far? <laughs> it's kind. <laughs> <laughs> What's the unkind version? I mean, I, I, I I've just been I've had the unkind version. You, you have, yeah. huh? Yeah. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to, you. The, to, to, to Toronto. And um, I, I was just saying before we started recording uh, this show that... that I've seen a, a few interviews with you in the process of researching. Not a lot of interviews in English, which is counterintuitive given that you've spent most of your life outside of Iran. So I'm glad to get the opportunity to do this in English because most of your audience or your clientele at least is non-Iranian, right? They're about uh, more than half, about 60 to 70% are non-Iranian. Uh, and the way I categorize them is, is a pretty good majority of them have no relations with Middle East or Iranian. Like they don't have a Persian wife or a girlfriend or boyfriend. So brand new, fresh. Uh, and that's, I, I prefer that in a way because, uh, you know, we can take the art to the next level and in, in make them understand where the culture stands. Hmm. I want, I'm going to ask you about that in particular, but... Um, just to start off, you're here for a, a pop-up. What's the most challenging part of doing a, a three-day pop-up of Nimani in Canada for a weekend? It's funny, actually, the first ever pop-up that Nimani had was in Toronto. It was in 2005, um, just because there was a fashion event in Toronto, and uh, a friend of mine said, we should really go there. Um, and I, at that point, we were young and we only had T-shirts and I have never been in any kind of a trunk show or a pop-up show. So we came here and it was such a successful show. Again, no Iranians attended that show. It was a fashion show. There was nothing, no ties to the Persian community. And we sold every single T-shirt. So that felt really good. So the whole notion of trunk shows started from Toronto. When you say no Iranians, you get little excitement in your voice. Right. It, why is <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming because there's bigger business to be done with uh, the entire rest of the world than just uh, the Iranian market. It's um, it's that too in a in a marketing uh, business side of it. But the brand started in 2005. The first ever Iranian who purchased anything from the brand was 2007. So for two years, not only uh, Iranians did not become the clientele of the brand, mm. but they really never endorsed it because... Uh, Even though what you were doing was steeped in Persian art. And right. Um, I mean, this is a, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing negative about it. This is how we are. I mean, I, as a teenager, I used to wear Timberland and Levi's and all of that. Right, and, right. and I was very proud of being influenced by the Western brands. Right. But uh, when Nimani started, we were really the first who implemented anything Persian into a contemporary fashion. I'm not talking about the haute couture of a one item on a red carpet, like a street fashion. Right. 
Um, and this was a big thing and people were not ready for it in a way. And I have a feeling that maybe they were hesitant because, you know, 9-11 had happened. Things right. were in a different uh, space at that time. So and I showed and I had to uh, communicate this to a lot of my friends in New York who are very, very famous and prominent artists. Um, I don't want to name them now, but um, I asked them for help. Like, this is what I'm trying to do. What do you think? Almost all of them were against it. Persian artists. Yes. So interesting. Um, I saw you saying this in an interview, and right. I couldn't understand why. So, because now, of course, right. I'm sure that they're, they're on side, right? Yes. So, and and the proposition was, um, you're labeling yourself as an Iranian in the middle of New York City right after 9/11. Like, why do you want to do that? Like, are you trying to be an activist and? To be honest, I wanted to have a a job. I wanted to do something. Um, I had no special mission. I'm not an activist. I didn't do this for a cause or anything. I wanted to have a living. Um, I was a graphic designer in New York, and it was either this or go work for another ad agency or whatnot. So this was a job for me, and uh, you know, I the good thing that I'm proud of myself now is. All of those, uh, not negative, but all of those comments that maybe this is not the right direction didn't really have any effect on me. Um, and I continued doing it. And I kept pushing it until uh, at a time that celebrities... Sorry, why didn't it have a, an effect on you? Why didn't it deflate you? It's going to sound really bad if I say it, but... Then you have to say it. What, um, what? It didn't have any effect because I didn't want them to be my customers. I said, they, they don't have money. They're not going to buy it. So that that's not my audience. It's okay if they don't like it. Mm. I'm going to go for a power audience. I mean, this was very naive of somebody to think that way, but I did. I was 21, and it's okay for me to think that way, uh, to stereotype people like that uh, with their purchasing power. But um, as soon as Paris Hilton, Heidi Klum, Nikki Hilton, these girls started wearing my T-shirts. All of a sudden, the Iranian community gained the confidence yeah. to come and subscribe to this. Um, okay, great. Um, now they're about 40% um, in general, 40% of the audience. But it's interesting to know that that 40%, majority of them are either in East Coast or Canada, not in California. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Contrary to what you may think, California is not a big um, seller for us. That is contrary to what I would think. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I thought about it a lot, and I think the reason for that is um, maybe not to generalize, but maybe the Persian community in California are not super proud of their heritage. Maybe they're just a little bit proud. You know, I. They, change their names to Freddy's and Tony's and all of that. And uh, right. so there is something there. Um, I would have never changed my name, even if my name was Qulam Reza, I would have not changed it. But some people do, and it's okay. Nothing wrong with Qulam Reza, There the is way. absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with it. But I'm hang on a example. second, two steps back, because you've touched on something that uh, I, I feel is a, is a paradox in the in the Iranian condition, uh, the di diasporic Iranian condition, in that there's there's always a great deal of pride, you know, uh, 
whether it's kudosh, kudosh, or like our history, right. or you know, or even more contemporary, you know, Reza Shah, Mosadegh, whatever it might be. Right. Um, but then there's this, there's this real need for validation from the West, Americans, white people. I'm not sure how to define it. But I've certainly noticed that even in my own life where the media success that I've had in a non-Iranian community means a lot more to Iranians than even when I launched Rook, they were like, okay, so for Iranians, oh, you know. I mean the, uh, right. What is that? What is that about? Why, why, why do we require that kind of validation? I mean, um, stepping back a little bit, uh, I feel like... Um, the reason that when after immigration, this process starts to kick in is all the troubles that an immigrant has to go through. Obviously, they have to fit in and they have to adapt a brand new culture and deal with new set of nuances and all of that. And there's a lot of work. So self-expression and individuality is not the first in your list because there's a lot of other things that you have to do. Right. And you have to have a job and a tax and this and that. So people in Tehran, I mean, besides the fact that 40%, uh, 70% of the country are below the age 40, which is a very unique thing yeah. for a country. Yeah. So it's a very fresh, vibrant, dynamic yeah. uh, youth in, in Iran. And uh, all of those guys, without knowing, they're involved in self-branding, extreme branding. They want to look a certain way. They want to influence a group. So that is why they're so advanced in adapting into new look and feel. Uh, I see brands in Tehran that people are, either, whether whether it's the replica or the real, it doesn't matter. But wait, those, wait a second, you're segueing into what we're. I, okay. I love it. I love yeah. it. You're going to where we're gonna what we're gonna talk about. Right. But but you interesting. You went there based on the conversation about why do we need American validation? Right. Um, is it to suggest that new generations don't need that in the way that? Um, our parent, the people who came 40 years ago um, still crave that or still appreciate that. And those same people who were saying to you, uh, why are you doing this Iranian stuff? Why, you know, you could have a future, you know, to okay, create something that has nothing to do with Iran. <clears throat> These are people who obviously take great pride in being Iranian right. too. That paradox is so weird for me because it speaks to a an inferiority complex right. that you know we, we need the acceptance of of the west which is has been our whole our whole point has been we don't want to be the west i thought right right exactly so in persian community this issue that you had mentioned is actually much lower than other ethnicities that i've experienced myself but it does exist um and the older generation have it more because they had to deal with a lot more hardship when they immigrated. I, I think that's the reason. When they when they came to U.S., they had to deal with a lot of unfamiliar territories. Now, somebody if they move to let's say New York from Tehran right now, they're very ready. Um, they're financially they're going to suffer, but they're ready. Hmm. Um, they have Instagram, TikTok, this that. They know the lingo. They yes. know what to do. Yes. They know what not to do. Yes. So they're in a sense they have this background that. I mean, nothing is like being there and actually yes. doing it, but but they're pretty ready. Um, I, I think our parents and our grandparents were not that ready. So yes. they, they came in and they, they were looking up for somebody to say, yes, it's okay, yes, it's not okay. Um, so I think that's part of the reason that a lot of people 
um, when I communicated this uh, idea of a Nimani as a brand to a lot of very smart, very intelligent artists, they were against it because because they actually cared for me. They were mm. like, yeah, this is not gonna be a lucrative thing for you. And I mean, go ahead and do it if you wanna do it, but why, this is not right. Um, and again, I'm not ashamed of saying it. As soon as celebrities brought it to them, they were okay with it. And has your self-impression changed in those 25 years? In, in other words, um, it's quite amazing actually, uh, just, you coming on this show, just mentioning it. I mentioned it once last week on the on the program, and I've told a couple of people about it. There's a there's a general excitement about you. First of all, Iranians know you. I I, I mean, uh, um, I can't. I don't even know if I can think of a brand. Maybe Gugush or something. <laughs> but 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 this kind of universal knowledge of Nimani is is remarkable you know what you've accomplished and and so you're clearly at a, a quite a high tier in terms of the success and accomplishment and yet i was seeing an interview that you did a couple of years ago where you say oh, you believe nimani is a work in progress um, which is Absolutely. an interesting thing to say for a guy who's as successful as you are so do you see yourself differently as the guy from 2005 or 1995 who was um, creating these things or, uh, or do, do you accept that you're more than just a work in progress? I still see it as a work in progress, but maybe it's uh, a lot of a lot more has been done uh, now, but there is a lot more that I would like to do uh, as a brand. I mean, I educated myself, you know, I, when I started the brand, I just knew I was a graphic designer I, and I printed a graphic that was interesting on a t-shirt. But then I wanted this to become a brand and I understood that after t-shirt, there isn't much that you can do. If you look at all these, I don't know if you remember Ed Hardy and sure. like all, all these t-shirt brands, like a yeah. brand that does t-shirt or a brand that they, their hero product is a t-shirt. Yeah. You can't remember go, Ed Hardy. Wasn't it just like 15 right, years ago? Exactly. Yeah, okay. You really can't go anywhere from a t-shirt because you started at a price point that is too low, ah. at a product that is too common, and then you cannot go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But now I have a clutch that is $500 and it's my best-selling product. So moving from the t-shirt into the next level, which was jewelry and then belts and then handbags and perfumes and rugs and all of that required an actual knowledge. Uh, so I sent myself back to school to study supply chain management and fashion management mm. and all of that. And I got my master, so I understood what to do to have a brand. Um, and I'm glad that we are at the point that the t-shirts are not that popular anymore, my t-shirts. So they, people like to buy a handbag. And the handbag is a, is, is a pretty expensive item for, for a brand of my size. Mm. Um, so uh, that's exciting for me that uh, the positioning of the brand has changed to a level like that. But there is a still a lot that I mm, would like to do. That's why I say work in progress. You you so often talk about wanting to that that your mission is telling a story. Right. Is that? Do you believe that that's part of? what any fashion designer, any fashion at all is is doing, or is that something that's unique to you? 
I believe that majority of the fashion brands who have a strong DNA, they have a story. And it's, it's super important to have a story. And they don't even have to say that story. It could convey itself through a visual experience. Um, all the brands that I, at least I like, say Tom Ford and Marc Jacobs, and but they have a story. They have a pretty strong story. Uh, and I experienced a unique circumstances as a teenager in Iran. And I, um, I still get excited when I tell somebody about those days and what we went through. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good story. And that story kind of empowered me to come and create a brand in a city like New York, which is, New York is a very rough place for a 20-year-old who doesn't have any money. So, um, this, who's audacious? Who's yeah. audacious? You had a gig in California. You were yeah. you, you you had a yeah. job. You were, yeah. it, it's it's kind of a badass and maybe even a little arrogant to think I can go to New York and 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 make it there. Yeah, um, I'm glad I did that. I mean, California is fantastic, but it wasn't for me. I. Um, threw myself at a situation that was very unknown, um, very scary, and I was scared, but things slowly started to work. And, and you know how when you're very satisfied creatively, you don't really have to have money, you don't have to have financial success, but you're just satisfied and happy. Uh, and that becomes the driving force behind everything. And, and I'm so lucky that that happened to me. Mm. Where's the, how do you navigate the line between telling a story and wanting to make a shitload of money? Um, In other words, if, if there's a product right. that can make you a shitload of money that doesn't involve telling the story, do you right, still do right, it? Right. Okay, money is important. Uh, it's not, um, again, I don't have such a mission to mm -hmm. give this story to people. There's not much value to that. I mean, I, I have a nice story. I, I'm, I'm like a director who has a very nice screenplay, yes. but I want to sell the film. People have to come and buy the ticket and watch it and like it, and then we make money. So um, the story is important, and I feel like in a product, when the story becomes less than 10%, that product doesn't sell. That product doesn't story become... becomes less than 10%. Right. Such a specific... Like so, you've looked at this scientifically. Exactly. So um, right now, after Nimani, you see many Persian brands. Yes. Many brands who are who tapped into the same thing that yes. we tapped into. But um, at least from the ones that I have seen, it's either too much of the Persianness to it. Uh, actually, I haven't seen too little. I've seen only too much. Um, it's too much. So it's for the Persian audience. Somebody not from this background is not going to understand what's going on when you have too much of something. And it's really difficult to understand what is the threshold. Mm. Um, so um, I have a page of Shahnameh, and Shahnameh is a, is a Game of Thrones. People are beheading each other. It's not a rosy tale. So, um, right, right. But it's colorful and beautiful. Yes. So what are you going to do? And it looks good. But if they get close, they're going to be frightened by the scenery that they see. So that that's such a potent thing to use, but you can't use all of it. And I know you want to use all of it because mm. it's so beautiful. So what does it mean to use a little bit of it? Uh, trial and error, trial and error, focus group. All my focus groups are non-Iranian. Look at this bag, what do you see? Um, and they say, okay, I see beauty. I said, okay, come close. What do you see? Oh my God, blood. Okay, so tell me. 
Are you upset about seeing that? Mm. What would you like to see more? So a lot of these back and forths uh, are the foundation of this brand that we found this sweet spot that the global audience can see the beauty of the Persian art. Um, if you go and extract the Persian art the way it is, it's beauty for me and you, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, not for me entirely, but, uh, but... It is for me. So the clutches, for example, is it beautiful? Right. Right. No, I'm talking about the classical Persian art, the way you extract it from the history. I see. Um, so, yeah. um, right. I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked, but I'll bring an example. For example, okay. Paisley or Bottejeqe that we have. Uh, it's Persian. It's yes. purely Persian, even though uh, in India, subcontinent India, they used it more in all sorts of things, but it's Persian and it's from Iran. So that thing can be really ugly. But at the same time, uh, Alexander McQueen used it in a dress and it's beautiful. Right. Um, Nanette Lapour used it in a collection and it looks beautiful. So what is it? Did they, so that um, ingredient was used at the right amount. Yes. Uh, but my grandmother had a piece of fabric that was loaded with paisleys and it looks horrendous. You can't even look at it. I mean, from an aesthetic point of view, but but I love this answer because it's like the, forgive me, I don't mean this, to, the, the, that you're the, uh, the equivalent of fast food. I was just thinking, just, my mind went to, that when they discovered that perfect ingredient for the McDonald's burger that's right. gonna make you know, people addicted to this for, I'm a fan of McDonald's. How, right. how can a company be number one for a decade after decade? These, these guys did something right, yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, whether it's healthy for you or not, et cetera, like that aside. Yeah. It's like you're finding, you're in a lab, finding the perfect formula. Why, why do the non-Iranians like it? I mean, like you say, I, I might like it because I'm like, oh, I can wear this T-shirt or my girlfriend can carry this clutch and, and we're also representing, yo, you know, this is our culture. Right, right. What, 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 is it for, what is it about for the non-Iranians that are the majority of your clientele, you say? So, yeah. So one thing to say about the, the type of audience that want to support the culture and that's why they buy it, that's the worst kind of audience you can have <laughs> because you, they turn you into a charity. Um, they want to help you. Um, <laughs> and we don't want that. Yeah, it's like, we don't want anybody to help. Let's say, would you go to uh, Dolce & Gabbana and want to help the Italian <laughs> culture to buy a pair of pants? Uh, so you don't do that. So, um, you know, when uh, a lot of people say, you know what, I really like your bag and I want to wear it and I want to show it to the world that we, come on, just become completely vain. Look at it. Are you going to buy this clutch if it was next to Fendi and Gucci or not? Mm. If you would only buy it to support Iranian culture, don't buy it. Because that doesn't mean you approve of this aesthetics. Wait a minute. Why, what do you, why is that a bad thing if they want to buy it that way? It's not a bad thing for the, seems like the a global great audience. But it's, for a brand, it's very bad. Huh. It's for a brand, it's, very, it's like me telling you, Jian, I'm going to come here and have an interview with you because I want to support your program. But not that I engage your you being articulate and your program and all of that. Right, right, right. So um, that, uh, the way we kind of separate- It feels patronizing. Right, I absolutely, see. it yeah. is, it is. So um, that's why all these uh, trial and error sessions and focus groups are conducted by non-Iranians because I want to make sure that, okay, Kim Kardashian has my clutch. Does she want to support 
the Iranian culture and show the world how beautiful this culture is? I don't think so. Um, she wants to have an exotic item yes. that looks different. Yes. So what do I do with this to look exotic? Um, do I have to be worried about our intellectuals who say, oh, you used this dot wrong and this wasn't supposed to be like that? Or should I care about the judgmental eyes of the fashion industry more? So it's, it's a paradox. It's a fine line. and I. But, you know, let me try this on you, though. If you are... If you if your brand becomes as big as yours has, and you are embedding, um, uh, maybe not appropriating, but using, um, uh, um, celebrating uh, elements of ancient Persian, Iranian art, culture, poetry, whatever, um, do, do you are, do you not have some kind of responsibility? I mean, what just to just to put it out there, what, what, why wouldn't it be appropriate to say, Nima uh, Jun, if you're going to do this? The world is seeing this through your your designs. We want you to get it right, or we want it to celebrate us somehow. Right. Then I become a uh, ambassador for uh, showing the culture to the world, and become a historian to do it correctly, to understand it correctly. I mean, I've done a lot of readings, more than probably somebody who's as young as me and studied history of art, mm. Persian history, but. It was for my business that I did that. So I, I studied it so that I'm not saying something that is wrong mm. and I'm not extracting something that is from a different kind of background. But um, the, the, the best way to explain this is to bring an example. So if I have the letter H as a knuckle on a clutch, mm -hmm. I like the knuckle because the clutch is beautiful, the knuckle is violence, and the marriage of these two creates something sexy and it people gravitate towards it and mm -hmm. other brands do that alexandra mcqueen do that gutier does that so and, and i did that and it worked now in my new collection i'm going to flip this letter so that it's going to be a wrong reading but it's going to fit on a hand nicer now all these guys are going to be like whoa, whoa what are you doing you can't do that it has to be right reading it has to be farsi no it doesn't it it has to look good and mm. uh, that's that's number one um, yes on a secondary level it cannot be something that is false and it cannot be something that is not from the correct origin yes I agree but the look matters if you want to survive in the fashion industry the other thing just as an aside man is when you're six when you're having achieving success all the decisions seem like the right decisions you, you know, when, so. when you're not, well, clearly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but you, you said something a few moments ago that uh, I'm glad you went there because I, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you are, you are seen um, unquestionably as a trailblazer. Um, with that said, there are a lot of designers doing this thing, as you've said, of, of using uh, payons to our ancient Persian culture or our designs or our, our background and uh, fusing those with modern designs and fashion forward looks and um, does that piss you off that there are others kind of doing what you've done it doesn't it doesn't piss me off in a way sometimes um, the name of the show is Rook right I'll try to be as Rook as possible but uh, sometimes uh I'll tell you why it, sometimes I get pissed off, but majority of times I am happy that they finally gained the confidence. 
So they're not afraid of this. They're not ashamed of this. They're not doing it right. They, it doesn't look good, but they're doing it, uh, which is a huge step um, that this he or she are trying to make a brand that is Iranian, which is, which is a huge step. And that's exciting. Um, and it reminds me of myself in the beginning that mm-hmm. how nobody was excited about this and I was completely alone. But these guys gained the confidence to do it, fine. But because there's a blueprint now that's been successful that uh, I mean and I'm not and I'm not accusing any specific situation of copying and I think inspiration comes in different shapes and forms and I uh, it's fine but when you ask me if I get pissed off sometimes I get pissed off because I feel like um, this equation is so wrong the ingredient the percentage the threshold that is gonna affect my stuff too uh, in a way, even though they're not going to be seen together. So that's really a rare situation, but that's on, the only time that I look at it and be like, oh, come on, don't do that. You know, How would it affect your stuff? Okay, so if let's say if somebody's, I don't know, searching for a very specific thing of Persian culture and then they see some of my products next to somebody who thinks that they have a fashion product and mm-hmm. they, they, they don't look right, um, next to each other all of a sudden. Uh, in a way, it brings the wrong attention to that item. I see, I, I think I understand what you mean. And I also understand what you mean when when they go too far, you said, they with the Persian-ness. It feels almost like a, it's like a fetish item. It's not really, right, a, it's right. like a, my Reza Shah mug, you know, or something rather than a, than kind yeah. of something that is a practical right. fashion item that we that is going to be available to a global audience. Right. I, I'm, have you ever seen or heard about the stores called Sanoyadasti or the handcrafts? It's no. like a souvenir shop. Yes. Um, it's like you come to New York and you go and buy I Love New York mug. In, yeah. in Iran, there are a lot of those. Okay. You can go there and see every single um, reference that we use or anybody uses. Right. But it's not cool. Nobody <laughs> wants them. Right. Um, there is no street cred. There's no clout about them. There's, nobody wants to associate right. themselves right. with Sanoya Dasi. But all the things are there. Everything is there. We have our embroidery is there, which is a very unique kind of embroidery. We have our all sorts of silver, metal work, leather work. Everything is there. But why is it not right? Because it's 200% that. Mm. With 0% style, 0% contemporariness and all of that yeah yeah it's uh, I, I i it's the princess die and, and um, plate that you get for right. uh, <laughs> to say you've gone to london exactly. uh, 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 I'm, I'm glad you said street cred because one of the things i wonder about with you um given that you've become so successful and given that there are all these young folks out there doing versions, albeit um, uh, deficient versions of, of what you might have done. Uh, how, how do you stay in touch with the street? Is that something that you, you think about or worry about? I mean, you're still a young guy, but ultimately a, a well-off guy hanging around in New York is not going to have the same tentacles as the student who was hungry for what he was doing, right? Right. So, great question. I worry about that all the time, and that's the main concern. So from the morning that I wake up, my wife usually tells me, how do you know this brand? 
this is for kids. This is for teenagers. I get myself educated with street brands, global street brands, all the time. To an extent that I got so involved that I was hired by Kanye West to work on his jewelry collection because I became so interested in the way that these Yeezys are working and the way these seasons are coming. So I ended up collaborating and making his jewelry line because I love the streetwear and the whole vibe of streetwear. I mean, uh, it's very interesting because um, we fashion was a holy grail of untouchable thing up there until uh, until grunge happened and grunge happened Mm. through music. I mean, I, I kind of divide music and fashion's marriage into two era mm. before Nirvana and after Nirvana. Interesting. Uh, and the reason was that we have one music video, Smells Like Teen Spirit, that all of a sudden, for the first time, people want to look like those guys. And what happened? What are those? Like they're wearing all these oversized sweaters that are ripped and vintage and all of that. So without knowing, grunge had happened. So the grunge fashion had happened. A few months after that, Mark Jacobs released a collection of grunge and he got mm. fired because of it, which is probably the best thing that happened to him. And then he was hired as a menswear designer for Louis Vuitton and his life changed. So grunge happened, that was a huge influence and that was the first time that the street fashion came on top. So street fashion came on yeah. top, influenced the entire fashion, killed the haute coutures, People did not go to Chanel to order one-off items and Dior and all of that. Things changed from that point of the history in 1991. So I feel like street uh, street fashion became luxury. It's no longer the street fashion as we used to have it. And, and a great example for that is the most expensive pair of denims we could ever buy was like $50, $60. But all of a sudden we became okay with paying $700 for a unique pair of denims. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Torn, too. Pre-torn. Pre-torn. And who made this okay for us? Like, what kind of a cultural influence happened? And that's beautiful because the street street fashion came on top. And uh, when you look at these kids in Tehran, they're wearing off-white. They're wearing Fear of God, all these, like, cult brands. So how do you stay in touch with the street? What is it? Are you up at 3 in the morning surfing the Internet, looking at... I mean, what is... No. what's What's your process? I have few people from my team are in that age range and they're uh, they're pretty fanatic streetwear people I connect with them I also being in New York helps a lot I keep telling everyone they're like why did you add New York to your first name it's a prominent part of the brand it would not happen if I was in San Francisco or anywhere else so the New York or Kentucky yeah Yeah. (laughs) it would have been very interesting (laughs) yeah different brand yeah yeah so that's important I keep myself up I mean I I am one of those customers. I buy the latest streetwear brand that is in right now, and I go stand in a line to get a ticket to buy the pair of shoes that is rare. And but also, you would have to suppress your own ego to a certain extent to have a 21-year-old tell you, no, actually, Dad, you know that doesn't look so cool anymore, but we don't like those. That's, that's not going to be easy to do, given your, you are Nimani. I love that. I listen to them. I'm being very rook. I love that advice that comes from the 21-year-old. And just a few weeks ago, I called my 21-year-old friend and I said, there is a fashion show in New York. Should I go? Or am I going to be uncool if I, if somebody sees me in that runway? And he's like, I, mean, I don't know. 
don't go. Okay, I'm not going to go. I listen to them because these guys are plugged in. They have TikTok and Instagram and this and that, and they're on Reddit and they're reading and they're, they're all these equations and they're, they're computing all the time. There is no way that I can keep up with that. No. No way that I can keep Might up Might they that. be wrong? Or is there no right or wrong? I don't know. I mean, the good ones are not wrong. Mm. I mean, they have to be in the right environment. They have to be in, in a city, in a dynamic city like New York. But who do you tend to bring on board? Like, who? how do you figure out who that 21-year-old is going to be uh, that is going to have that kind of access to you and your mind? A lot of trial and error. A lot of trial and error. But at some point when I was, let's say, 30 years old, I thought I was a hustler. I survived in New York. I'm a hustler. Until I saw an 18-year-old, and then I was like, I should really shut up about that. You are not a hustler. And these kids are operating on a very different level. Um, and they are much smarter than me when I was 18 years mm. old or anybody at that point because they're, they're very aware of the situation. And I have a feeling that this is the same with Tehran. I mean, I see these kids, um, uh, yes, they have limitation, but they're also connected. They're also connected to Instagram and the well, global Let me get audience. to that question at the, at the heart right. of today's. By the way, you mentioned Kanye, mm. but you, did you deal with him directly? All the time. And sat with him is uh, he in an empty room as hours and hours. Idiosyncratic as he would appear to be in the, in the gossip press? Maybe, I, I didn't see that part. I mean, he was he came off extremely creative. Is he um, nice to you? Very nice to me, extremely creative. He listened to me, um, that's the most important thing. Mm. But he goes through phases and moods. The, the mood shifts maybe more than a regular person. But I mean, majority of the creative, creative directors are somewhat like that. He has some interesting ideas. He has changed the course of fashion. I mean, it's really, uh, naive to say he didn't, but he really did. He so. has changed the course of fashion. 100%. For the world? Yes. Yes. How, how so? So you look at the footwear industry. Footwear industry on a sneaker level looks different pre-easy and post-easy. Everything looks different. You, um, He has influenced major brands to come and really produce something that looks like they're copying him. And they're okay with that. I'm sure somebody in their groups said, don't do that because everybody is going to say you copied Kanye West. But they did it because there was a value to that. And right now you see the situation going on with Adidas and they, they, they want to do business with him despite everything that has happened. So, I mean, there is something to say about that. I mean, I'm not a fan of everything that he does. but Or um, some of the things he says, certainly. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And But things have changed and I think the reason that Louis Vuitton goes and hires Pharrell as a creative director is Kanye West interesting yeah wow I, that's such a I mean you know you sort of forget uh, I, I was such a fan of those early records but there's so much talk about his um, uh, you know less impressive side or, or some of the things he does and says that you forget that that the guys he really is kind of a alien-like artist who's got these ideas, right? right, that, you right, know. right. Um, okay, so this question at the heart of today's episode, it, it seems, again, counterintuitive for Iranians in a country where we hear about repression, restriction of freedoms, uh, where there's clothing laws. 
it seems interesting to make the case that people there are more fashionable, and yet there are many who would make exactly this case. Tell me why you think this is the case. I deal with this question a lot every day, almost, um, and I've done a lot of reading around the subject matter. So uh, the way I answer myself with a situation like this is that um, I often ask, what is it about us saying that we have a rich heritage? So we do say that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm Iranian, Persian has a very rich heritage. Need to go back a couple thousand years sometimes. but Right, uh, yeah. exactly. But what does that mean in a practical term for you and me today? Nothing. So Does it mean anything? So exactly. In, you know, when I, I'm sitting here next to, let's say, somebody from a different kind of background, and I say, listen, I'm Persian, and I come from a very rich heritage. What did it give me? Like, what does it mean exactly? Mm. Um, so I think that you can divide it into a conscious and subconscious kind of effects of this super rich heritage. That is true that we had it, the civilization and all of that, and Cyrus the Great and mm -hmm. whatnot. But, and I did a lot of reading on these guys, by the way, like even Darius and Cyrus and all of that. They did great things, but okay, the guy was a genius war commander and he managed his army better than everyone else and he did this. And mm -hmm. What does it mean for me, for an Iranian immigrant in New York? Uh, the, sorry, uh, I might modify that to right. say, as great as those things, those right. incredible accomplishments might right. be, can I possibly take credit for them? <laughs> 2,000 years later as, a, as, as an Iranian it's in not, Toronto. Not even the credit. I want to detect the traces of that effect right. in myself. Okay. Sure. I want to yeah. look at my behavior today as an artist and say, which part of me comes from that greatness? It's, I call it a greatness. Okay, so where is it? And I, the way that I can answer this is that um, there is a creativity hidden in majority of these kids that I see in Iran. And so everybody has this sense of self-expression. Uh, they want to show themselves. They want to brand themselves. But when you get to that region, all of a sudden they get really creative. And you cannot say that all of it is because of limitation. Limitation will make you more creative mm. because you have to work with a smaller set of tools and you're going to... It will. Yes. So you... I love that. So it, uh, this is the idea that it's... it's you, if I, if I give you a canvas that's this, only this big, right. you're going to be more creative than 100%. I say if you can use the whole room. Yes. Is that true of all repressed societies then? No, 100%. And that's why, that's why I said it's not all limitation because when I explain the situation in Iran to others, they're like, of course, because they don't have TV, they don't have this and that, they have to think, yes, limitation is going to make you think more. Mm. But... It's really not fair to say all of that creativity comes from limitation because it it doesn't. Um, and there's something in the DNA. So it's quite extraordinary. How do it? you how do you explain this? We um, we had art movements in our history. Mm. Uh, we have a Esfahan school of painting, Tehran school of painting, and this is 15th 16th century. At the same time, in Europe, we had Renaissance. So Iran had movements of art. When it was in Esfahan, everything got very like court-like and royal and fine lines. When it got to Tehran, because of the Qajar dynasty and all of that, it had a little bit of Western influence and became more interesting and uh, hyper-realism and all of that. 
this is really not a small thing that this culture at that early stage of its history had art movement. Um, I'm not comparing anything to anything, but take a look at our neighboring countries. When you study the Arab art, they had a magnificent art, but it was 100% Islamic art. Mm. They, it had to evolve around Islamic art until 2010 with the Arab Spring that all of a sudden these Egyptian and Tunisian, French Tunisian artists mm. started creating this movement called the Arab Spring. But we had this movement in 15th century in a very profound way. There was a school of art. Uh, so all these things become references that people can use like you have 25 different kinds of miniature, 25 different kinds of putting a miniature together, right. there is a value to that. And you don't have to be an educated person and you don't have to be an art historian to tap into that. It's there. You're going to see it. Uh, and your toolbox is much larger than somebody I, from a different I background. love that. I love that. The, I mean, I want to believe that, too, right. that, that our history... Um, the lived history of those who came before us means something. Um, but the question is, the proposition, Nima, is not just uh, are Iranians more fashionable in, inside Iran than the rest of the world. It's are Iranians more fashionable inside Iran than Iranians outside of Iran, right? right? So why in the diaspora? Um, first of all, no, let me, before I get to that, your, your own experience, You've talked about how limitations created the conditions where, let me, let me quote from you. You were a teenager, Western products were banned. This is the 80s. So when you got those commodities, you had access to them. You really noticed them and you had to create your own version of pop culture. I'm quoting you. We had to wait for someone to bring these things from the outside or we had to make our own and we slowly started to create our own story. So, so that suggests that you're living in this, particularly in the decade after the, the Islamic Revolution, you're living in a particularly repressed state and your create, creative instincts are flourishing because you're given a little box to work in that doesn't have access to the bigger box, right? Absolutely, yes. So that sparked the creativity. Um, I cherish those items that we, we had no access to because at that point we didn't. So let's say somebody's coming and bringing a gift of a pair of Levi's for me. I loved it. And then what should I do to have a second pair? I can't wait for someone else to come. So let me make my own. So until here, it's a driving force and we have it. But what are you going to put on that denim to make it your own? What kind of art? Hmm. Where are you going to get it? You're going to tap into which part of your brain? Which part of your heritage? You're going to put calligraphy on it? How do you know what calligraphy is? Mm. Why do you know it? So I think the second part relies on that cultural factor because um, it's there. We, yes. we know that, that it's there. Um, you know, we, we know, we do have the Sorab Seperi, who is a fantastic poet, but a painter on the side. And we have these phenomenal things in our culture. So yes. it, it's, it's really there. And me as a teenager, um, I started putting all these graffitis on the denim when I was 16, 17, but the graffitis were kind of like the Zenderudi paintings in my house. Why was it there? Why did my dad have that in the house? Mm. Why not something else? So we're exposed to that, and it doesn't mean that you have to be on an intellectual level to be exposed to that, it's there. So then, so then the diaspora, 
So then the millions of Iranians now outside of Iran, and especially those in Western countries who have easier access to luxury brands and tend to, it seems, place more emphasis on wearing these labels as a way to display their social status. Um, And as a result, their fashion choices can sometimes be seen as more formulaic, less original compared to those of, of Iranians inside Iran. Why, why are Iranians in the diaspora, uh, I, I cherish the fact that I get to ask you this question, why are Iranians in the diaspora still so brand obsessed in terms of what are considered those traditional status brands in Western fashion? Right. They have to fit in. They have to fit in. So they came to an environment that the challenge is to fit in. So if I buy this Birkin, I'm going to look like this other woman who has it. Very simple. And it's a horrible thing to think about it because do you like the bag? Do you like the color? Birkin is a men's bag. Uh, It was intended for men. And it became a female bag because Jane Birkin started. Right. I thought it was. So do you know that? It's a very masculine bag. There's nothing sexy. No, I I actually didn't. I I thought it was made for women. So, So interesting. But we have to have it because it's $100,000 and it looks like we fit in. So, but I just want to make sure that there's no misunderstanding. There's nothing wrong with liking luxury. I mean, it's luxury is luxury. I I want to better everything. But the proposition changes for those guys because they come in an environment and the first step is to fit in, right? These kids in Iran, they're there. They don't have to fit in, but they have to brand themselves. So they, they get really creative. They become brand agents. But after 40 years in L.A., the instinct is still, I need to fit in? I think so. I think so. It's a bit sad, really. I mean, it's, if it gives them happiness, it's not sad. I mean, it's, if, if it makes them happy to, I mean, to me it is. I look at it and I'm like, but they all look like each other. Well, that's, yeah. Um, it's the same thing repeated. And the pressure to... Um, I was telling Super P who works with me uh, that this, this morning that you know I've always driven a mini car I have nothing right. against luxury right. I, I'm, I'm with you great and, and if you've worked hard you've got money and you want to buy right. luxury things good on you but I like minis I grew up in England it reminds me of England it's my little brand thing you know right. I still feel self-conscious when I go to a Mahamuni and all the cars are uniform BMW SUV or Mercedes, and I've got my mini countryman, you know, even if it's souped up, you know, and and <laughs> because I don't, I don't, and I, I don't want to buy one of those. I don't, right. I don't want to f- be a, uh, you know, just a follower of, right. of what we're supposed to do. Right. I don't understand why. So I guess what you're saying is that instinct, the fit in uh, instinct, uh, trumps the. The creative instincts that and the traditions that you've just been making the, the great case that is in our DNA for the ones who are less fashionable than the folks in Iran, yes. But and by no means I'm saying whoever is in LA is a brand victim. Right. I mean they're very creative and stylish people there that I know myself uh, and I'm in touch with them. But the majority that you're calling out because there is a contrast between them and the same group in Iran. The way I answer this for myself is that they have to fit in. Their challenges are very different. Um, those guys don't have to fit in. They just have to show that they're creative. They have to um, 
I mean, it's not a really a joke that 70% of a country are below the age 40. So these, th- that means each one of them can influence a group of friends. But the best part of what you've said, by the way, I only drive a Mini because I can't get a Gion. If I, if I could, I've never seen a Gion. Yeah. If I could ever get a Gion, that'll be the, that's my car, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the shitty little Gion. Uh, uh, the best part of what you said about the young people in Iran is not just that because of their own creative instincts and because of the limitations, et cetera, they're doing interesting things. It's that they don't, if I'm hearing you correctly, they also don't necessarily give a fuck about what they're supposed to wear, the Gucci, whatever, that they're more open to doing what they want, unchained from status expectations. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. I don't know if they necessarily don't care about that. Uh, the economic factor is there. Mm. I mean, if it was there, I don't think they, you know, with the situation, they could, all of them could afford that. It's not that they don't care, but if they all start to look like each other, then there is no branding. Let's say you, uh, you know, somebody simplified this for me and said, you know what branding is? You go to a gala, go to a party. People don't know you. Before they come to you and start to talk to you, you have to wear something so that they come to you. That's branding, right? Mm -hmm. So these kids are so concerned about that to be able to attract and influence a group of people to have a brand, to have a specific look and brand. And there's a lot of them that are, they look horrible as well. And the way with the style and everything. I mean, it's not that, we're not saying that they're on top of the right. fashion world, but I'm, what I'm saying is they're t- really trying hard to distinguish themselves from something else, which is very plausible and it's very exciting. Um, You're uh, in touch with a lot of young designers there, yes. right? What are you most excited about in terms of what young designers in Iran are doing today? The way they present themselves is very professional, and I'm very surprised when I look at it. They have a little showroom, they have an Instagram page, they show everything, they go to fittings, they go to focus groups, they do things that are correct in a, without having a fashion education. Uh, so that means they observed and they learned um, and they started to follow some steps that are correct in a way. Um, I have a feeling that, I mean, I, I go to Istanbul a lot f- for work. Um, those guys are very creative. So what they did with design. Those guys meaning the Turks? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, their fashion industry is very advanced. But a, a lot of people tell me, you know what? These guys are super creative. They are. But at the same time, they have a very strong manufacturing arm that can feed into this creativity. Now, these folks in Iran, they don't have that at all. You cannot manufacture anything correctly, you know, with the supply chain problems, mm-hmm. quality problems, and all of that. So they really have to step up their game in the design part, because it's not like whatever they sketch tomorrow, a factory is gonna produce that. They really have to be creative. The, mm-hmm. the fabric choices are not a lot, you know. They 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 have to work within certain boundaries. That's why it kind of comes off as a the extra creative in a way. What do you? As a, as a mentor, I mean, I'm sure you've, you're put in that position sometimes, even unwittingly. There's a young designer inside Iran going, Nima, what, what, what should I do? What's, the, what's my best first step forward? What, what's your message to them, generally? 
one of the issues that I see a lot is that they look at big brands and they think that they have to try for a few years and their savior is going to come and save them and turn them into a big brand. What savior? A let's say corporation. The, or? Let's say a VC or an uh, angel investor, whatever it is, uh, there is a savior. So they run and at some point they stop waiting for the savior. I would like to tell them that do not wait for anybody because even if they not run and they walk slow, they're going to become successful if they keep a steady pace. Mm. So it's not this savior is not, I mean, this is true not only in Iran and everywhere else as well, because, you know, a lot of people, they don't really want to put too much work. They want to put a certain amount of work and they're like, okay, is it worth it if I push this any further because it's not working? So somebody should come and buy me at this point. I don't think that's necessarily correct. It has changed a lot of big brands, but that way of thinking is not believing in yourself. Can I ask you a, a strange twist on this? This is what we're talking about. Do you believe that? I, I mean, I think that I, I don't. I, I don't meet very many Iranians outside of Iran who don't wish for change in Iran in terms of freedom and and and. And democracy, etc. Do you do you think on some level that if, if Iran was to change over overnight tomorrow, that that interesting development of the creativity of the design inside Iran would be affected? In other words, that um, in a, in a negative way somehow. No. So, if you that, know what I'm asking, right? Right. Yeah. right. So, if that has happened, if that is going to happen, let's say. Um, maybe and maybe not, the limitation factor is going to be removed from the story, let's say, yeah. hypothetically. Um, but if the manufacturing arm gets added to the factor, then it's going to be great. Mm. Then it's going to mean that whatever you had in your mind, now you can have it in reality. So we do not have a good supply chain because of all the issues that the country has and the sanctions and whatnot. But if the manufacturing arm is there, that is going to help a lot of these young designers so they can see their creations in front of them and they can have ready to wear and they can have mass productions and stores and whatnot. They don't have that. So if you're saying that if you remove their limitation, are they going to, the creativity is going to die? No, because I don't think all of it comes from limitation. It's such a, um, it's really it's been a great pleasure getting to talk to you. I, I was, um, I've always been told that you're an intellectual, and I and it's it's um, really I'm, really. I'm not at all. I don't consider you, myself. You, you certainly sound uh, like yeah, it, and you've made yeah, the case, yeah. by the way, that you've read a lot of books a few times in this yeah. interview. Don't don't be back it off that right, now. You right. you you you're, you clearly have a strong intellect. It's really really good getting getting to hear your perspective. A couple of questions before I let you go, right. and I've kept you here a long time. How how do you? Uh, I was going to say how do you define success, but let me let me ask you how you will dis define success for you and your company for the next decade? So on a personal level, um, anybody, anybody who is involved in any kind of business, there is a fun part and a hideous part of that business. So no business is all fun or all hard work. It's just a mixture of two. If I keep the fun part, the majority of it, I'm going to be very happy. I don't necessarily have to get to a point that, okay, that revenue is going to double and triple and this and that. I really care about the 
happiness part as well. So I have to stay satisfied with this. Um, I'm really afraid of turning something that was fun at some point into a pure business. Um, not that I don't like financial success. It's just that then it's going to be a job. It's not going to be a fun thing. And it's to not do. a job. I mean, I mean, I'm guessing you probably work really hard. Do you take days off? No, you and, don't and take and days I, off. And I do work hard. And I you work tw- seven days a week. Yes. And you probably are kind of a workaholic, right? You probably have a full schedule every day. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not probably, you yeah. know. So, what about that? I mean, is I, I mean, do you do you need to think about that balance? I assume majority of it is fun, and that's why I'm doing it because nobody just likes to be a workaholic of a non-fun work, right? Because that's just not right. Um, I say this to a lot of my Some friends. Some people can't stop themselves. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of people come and say, I hustle every day. If you hustle all your life, that means you're doing something wrong. You can't be hustling all day long. You have to hustle maybe until you're 18, and after that it has to be a smooth ride. Otherwise, you did something wrong somewhere. So the workaholic part is because it's fun. So I continue doing it, mm. and it's exciting. I design something and then people like the design and then people can connect to each other and it's very exciting um it's just fascinating for me that the name of iran and iranian history comes up in a very unconventional setting at a gala or a party Mm. let's say in new york and because of a handbag Mm. so it's that's fascinating it's uh it's not because of reading a piece of poetry or watching an art film that is abstract to understand and then you're like oh wow Iranian it's just because of a very vain item that all of a sudden you start talking about the Iranian culture I I like that fascinating I mean I find that fascinating and finally I mean maybe jumping off of that that final point Nimani the company the brand it's a pretty big deal these days like it's it's a big company right you're doing a lot of things right uh, I, I mean, it's successful. It's the, you've got products. You're known around the world. You've got a, a strong clientele. It's also seemingly very dependent upon you. You're Nimon. You are the guy. Is that a business liability? It is. It's not a good thing. So um, any successful business needs to be able to delegate. Um, and I can delegate a lot of things. But one thing that it's difficult to delegate is that I kind of understood a formula to during these 15 years that what is the right dosage of art to use? That is a very valuable thing for this brand. So um, that's a big question mark. Now, how are you going to find somebody who is going to understand that? How can I transfer that? Do I have the ability to transfer this correctly to a group of people? I really try and I wish that I get to that point very soon that I can easily transfer that. I mean, it's a it's a great success if I can do that. It's such a great pleasure to have you here. To, to end off where we started, you've got this pop-up the next three days. There is a actually our largest market of the cities that listen to this program is Toronto. So if, if somebody comes down to downtown Toronto, King Street, uh, to see your pop-up in the next three days, what do they see? Do they see you? Are you there? I'm going to be there. Um, uh, but most importantly, more important than me, I'm going to have products on this pop-up that are not on the website, not released, and they will be the first time 
that they can see these items because these are whether one of a kind rare or hasn't been released kind of items. Wow. Uh, and the space is a very interesting can, space. Can I say like what? There are certain jackets, certain handbags. There is a very specific clutch that I've been working on for four years. It goes back to our discussion about Cyrus and Darius. And, and I finally got to a point that I'm okay with producing it and I produced it. No one has seen it. It's gonna be released uh, on these three days. Uh, and the space is a fantastic space because few of my favorite designers like Martin Margiela, uh, they hold their pop-up shows at the space. So it's an interesting space. And the group who uh, managed and designed the event for me uh, called Turan, they're based in Toronto and they're pretty capable people and they put together an interesting uh, three-day pop-up. Good luck with it. Can't wait to see it. Thank you for doing this. Really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you for having me. Hope to do it again to be continued. Merci. Thank you. This is Rook, episode 312. Are people inside Iran more fashionable? The answer seems to be an unequivocal yes, based on uh, Nima, who was just in the studio. Nima Behnoud has left the Rook studio. Pega has come back in. Smart Pega, hello. Um, I'm so energized by that interview. Mm-hmm. What, you, there's so many things he said that I uh, can't wait to sit and think more about. <laughs> Like, I, I don't even know where to start. Nirvana changed the game. Yeah. Wow. Like, I get it. It's so true. Now that I mm-hmm. think about it, I mean, I'm a kid of the 90s. I, this right. was like, I remember that. Uh, uh, I remember years in university where um, everybody, men, women, whatever, <laughs> uh, just wore the same lumberjack oversized shirts and jeans, Kurt Cobain style. Um, the fact that he doesn't, care about doesn't want Mm -hmm. doesn't want clients doesn't want an audience doesn't want a a customer that only wants to support because of the iranian thing and you know um i thought that was fascinating to just say i mean that this that's a business person Mm -hmm. i mean that's a smart business he's he's like that you can't build a career that way yeah i want people to want limitation i guess he wants people to love the styles Mm -hmm. to be into what he's doing rather than the fact to support him because he's doing things for Iranian culture. And the reality is there's so much more than just Iranians who know the brand and, and appreciate it and, and go after it. He made the case over and over again that it's the majority of his his clientele is not Iranian. Mm-hmm. And that was um, really, I mean, and, and, and the, the Kanye stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a lot there to chew on. I really appreciated how I'd heard, you know, he was, he's good buddies with Kambi Soseni. Mm-hmm. And Kambi said... Uh, I, I was texting with him a couple of nights ago and Combi said, because I guess Combi's used to do his show out in New York. Mm-hmm. Nima is off, off Nima and is Nima NY. NY, yes. Um, so they were good buddies, or they are, and Combi said, this guy's he's super smart. He's really fun to talk to. I mean, there was so much that he said. Uh, of course, I agreed with what everything that he was saying, but there was so much that he mentioned that I hadn't even thought of. I mean, for me, it was just, of course, Iranians in Iran are more fashionable. They're limited, and that limitation creates creativity, and every choice that they make is a political statement. And I mean, all these things that 
I think many Iranians know as a result mm. of seeing what's coming out from inside Iran. But the fact that he explained it and, and took it that much further to say that, you know, yes, it is limitations, but it's also something creative that's been with us historically mm-hmm. and really pinpointed that. I thought yeah. that was amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and his... his uh, it's always, I mean, uh, you, when you interview somebody who's that, that bec- been that successful, you... Despite the fact that he's an artist, he's mm-hmm. an illustrator, he's a designer, he's a, he's a guy draws. You know, he could. He's not somebody who's sort of um, stopped at that and said, "I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, I'll have a good manager who can do the business part." He goes to school. He goes to. He he sets him an intention to become uh, really sharp about the business elements here. Mm-hmm. And you heard him talking about the percentages of how much to be Persian, how much to not be, to, 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 to find the sweet spots for, to sell the most. I mean, he's really, um, if I were a young person in fashion, that, uh, this, I would want, I would die to be mentored by this guy, you know? I mean, he's, uh, it, it's quite an, an education. And, and uh, it's, it's an interesting topic that um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree that Everyone would immediately think that Iranians are more fashionable inside Iran, even amongst Iranians. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I actually think that e- even Iran, e- even amongst some Iranians, there's there's prejudices about what happens inside Iran, or there's expectations or mm-hmm. stereotypes about what happens inside Iran, and um, and you have to scratch a little bit to to get to what what the case that he's making mm-hmm. that is a really good one. I think definitely in the last like at least five to ten years, it's become so much more known that there are these brands coming out from inside of Iran. That that's why I immediately think, oh, you know, most Iranians yeah. would would understand yeah. that. But I can see you that see all these new dynamic, as you said, these dynamic um, designers on Instagram and mm-hmm. stuff who were inside Iran. Um, although it was interesting to ask him, you know, how do you feel about the fact that they're following your footsteps, kind of aping what you do, mimicking <laughs> you to a certain extent. And are you pissed off by that? And he kind of basically mm-hmm. said he was, you know, yeah. but only because they're not doing it as well as him, That's right. which I thought was interesting too. Um, we'd love your fee- feedback on this. If you want to continue this conversation or tell us more about it, info at Rook Media, info at Rook Media, are people inside more Iran more fashionable. Um, really enjoyed that uh, that chat with Nimani. We thought we would do a roundup after so mm-hmm. we'll do it right now pega before we end the show and um i know that there is an election coming up in iran mm-hmm. which is kind of um preoccupying a lot of the the oxygen that normally is there for news mm-hmm. out of iran that's right what is the 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 latest with this election other than from what i assume or, or what i hear most people are especially in the backdrop of the uprising and mass Amini, et cetera, are, are not expecting to participate in this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is exactly what you just mentioned, the fact that there is this expectation that not a lot of people are going to participate. But I think that gets broken down into two different kind of aspects. The first is there's a bunch of campaigns to actually boycott the election. And a lot of these campaigns are being started within the diaspora. You see, you know, activists um, really being at the at the forefront of these campaigns saying that any sort of engagement in this election is, you know, going against everything we've been trying to fight for over the last year and a half. 
Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's the aspect of the elections and those living inside Iran where there's been preliminary research and some preliminary polls that have been done. And that's showing less than a 34% expected turnout. <sighs> Um, that's something like one in three is likely to vote. And when you look at it even a little bit further, um, for those between the ages of 18 and 29, only 19% of them have even considered wow. going to vote. Wow. Can so you, you really do see that um, that lack of faith and that lack of trust within the, the system. And that's why so many people aren't going. P.S. Lack of democracy. Exactly. I mean, uh, we, you know. What what illegitimate government? I mean, what what is already an illeg- illegitimate government becomes even more illegitimate when only eighteen percent of voted, right? That's right. And one of the things, um, there's been a couple of groups that have done kind of a, um, a bit of a study into this and why this is going to be one of the years where there's going to be the least amount of turnout. Um, and some of the information that's been pulled from that study I thought was just really fascinating. And I mean, things that we've talked about over the last year and a bit, but still interesting to note is that most of the population is saying that they have really nothing left to lose. And so the society is looking at it as, you know, there's jobs are scarce, corruption is rampant, Mm. the economy is at an all time low. um, And all you see is the ruling elite where, you know, of course, we we know the problems of the Islamic Republic Mm, and, and what they're doing. And so everything is just so out of touch with the needs of the Iranians within the country that they refuse to take. But isn't it also that it's just a false choice? Like the the slate of candidates are not, you know, it's not like uh, you can vote for the person who's you know, wants to change the regime and, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and you know bring in socialism or something you know for sure and even with you know who used to be referred to as like the reformist candidates so many of them have been taken out of the race hmm. in the sense that there's been um, you know false reasons of course but accusations and things like that saying that they're not qualified if you will to run and I put qualified in kind of air quotes because we all know that there's no real system to really qualify them Um, and and on that same note um, you know when we talk about the the ruling elite we look at things like the tone and the change in tone so um, anytime there's the elections taking place within Iran we see a a shift in what the Islamic Republic um, their, their messaging the way that they approach individuals all of that. So one of the examples of that is actually last week, um, Ali Khamenei, was, he had a speech in regards to the upcoming elections, and, and he was borderline begging people to come out and, and vote. Um, and he was trying to really play the, the nationalism card, saying yeah. that you know all Iranians should come out and vote. And something that he did, which is really interesting, is that he said, you know, if we don't, then um, things will start to fall apart, but I don't want to accuse anyone. And he kept driving this point home that he didn't want to accuse any group of individuals or any demographic or anything like that. And that's a first. We haven't seen him, you know, be so soft-spoken in in any of his speeches up until this point. And I think that's as a result of the fact that this is the the first election after the killing of Massa Amini. All right, all right. Um, what else? Anything else you want to talk about in the roundup? Um, I think the election is really just the most important. When is it? Uh, tomorrow, March first. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> imminent. Yes. Right. Getting there. So for most people listening to this, it's already happened. Probably. They'll have the actual percentages of people they who will. didn't vote, or if they can find out. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um. And you. You. Did you want to say something about um, um, Nagas Mohammadi? Yes, Nagas Mohammadi's father um, passed away, um, I believe, just 
two days ago, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, usually even if you are a prisoner um, and you have a loss of that magnitude, you are sometimes given the ability to attend funeral processions and things like that. And of course, Nagas Mohammadi was denied um, that option. Um, and so she, of course, was very upset about that and as rightly so. Mm. Um, but, you know, being the, the fierce advocate that she is, when asked about it, not only did she comment on that, but she also took the opportunity to reject the idea of this election and, and used, again, her minimal platform at this point to, to voice her opinion on that as well. All right. Thanks, Pega. Thanks for that. Thanks for the roundup. Thanks Thank for being you. here. Thanks to Nima Behnoud and Nima Ni. And again, give us your thoughts on that or anything uh, we do on this program at info at rookmedia.com or uh, post on any of our platforms. This is full time for Rook for today. There it is. There's the music. Well done, Super P. You got it in there. For all things Rook related, go to our website rookmedia.com that's the site rookmedia.com where you can find all things rook related including all of our back episodes our funnies our different series that we've had the contemporary history of iran the videos etc it's all there rookmedia.com thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week smart pega super parisa savvy rohan talented anahita bearded omid methodical kabeh Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and for sharing our content. Please do subscribe if after all this time you haven't done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashi.